You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Well, I'm Chip Bennett, and this is uh, Dr. Warren Gage, and we're continuing our study here on the book of Revelation. And I think we've We've covered a, a lot of material. We've, we, you know, we've talked about the fact that the books had a center in, you know, in, in Hellenism. We talked about Revelation 12. We've talked a little bit about sort of the, the background and the, the narrative of, of, the, of the book being Joshua and you know, the importance of the, that, that name. Talked about you know, this is not sort of some novel new idea that we've, that we've come up with. We're ready to get into some of the most heavy data in, in mm-hmm. this whole thing. The, the other stuff sort of orbits around the debt. But I think the other stuff is important to get to this here. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna show how when you read John and Revelation sequentially, and again, it's not a perfect sequence because they're not exactly the same amount of material. But when you read them through, you start to pick up the amount of vocabulary words that are used in the books and the way that they're being used intentionally, it starts to become overwhelming that there's no possible way there could be two different dudes writing these books. And then we're not only gonna look at it streaming through, but we're also gonna look at it chiastically. And I think that Mm -hmm. when you put these two things together, at least for me, and I suspect most people who will listen to this and actually apply this and look at it, the the data's pretty overwhelming um, because you know, having studied Literature, one of the things you look for is themes and vocabulary words and other stuff that writers are using. Um, This is in spades. I I don't want to say that it's beyond questionable because I I think everything can be questioned, but I do think that this is a pretty compelling case here. First of all, what this implies is that the two books of John, the Johannine Enterprise, the two great books of John, are in dialogue with each other. Mm. They're aware of each other mm-hmm. and they are speaking to each other. And I think the way to conceive of that is that Revelation, for the most part, is giving the perspective from heaven. Mm-hmm. First four chapters are on the earth. Sure. You've got the two chapters about the churches and Jesus comes to Patmos, the last place on earth mm-hmm. that he is actually physically that we know of. That takes place on earth, but then he's caught up to heaven in the heavenly Mm -hmm. throne room scene in chapter four and five. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of it, for the most part, is from a heavenly perspective. John, of course, the gospel is written from the perspective of earth. So if we can conceive of it that way, that Revelation is like the second story and the gospel is the first floor, they are interacting with each other. The key words between the two books are ascending and descending. We see that again and again and again. Mm -hmm. The anabasis and the catabasis connection shows that someone's coming down, someone's going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will become a major theme. We'll see that that really becomes key. Uh, the angels that will pour out judgment are pouring out vials upon the earth below. Mm-hmm. And you know everybody in heaven is seeing what is going on. We actually suggested that there's a possibility of a axis between the two yeah. in chapter 12. It sounds like the phenomena that take place on earth physically, right. the voice, the, the thundering and all of that that's yeah. heard, and Jesus saying he sees Satan cast out, that describes what's going on in heaven. If Satan is being cast out, the Son of Man has to be lifted up. The lifting up is ironic. He's lifted up on the cross. Mm-hmm. And only after that, he's been buried as he ascended into sure. heaven. But I think if we can conceive of, you know, are these two books arranged like that? Conceptually, I think that that will help us can enormously. I, can I, I think this is important too, if somebody's listening or watching. This is not fanciful because most scholars agree that Luke and Acts are communicating with one another. Mm-hmm. And we would call that a literary diptych. I think it's important because somebody may say, hold, hold, 
oh, oh how are you reading these two books like this? I mean, th th there are whole enterprises on Luke and Acts that show that what Jesus did in the book of Luke, Paul is doing in the, in the book of Acts. And John and, the Baptist speak Peter. Absolutely. And, and, and then you've yeah. got the same miracles that go on with Peter in the first part mm -hmm. of the book of Acts, go on with Paul. In the, the journey part. to Jerusalem that yes. both Jesus and, Correct. and Paul makes. The so, first public speaking, yeah. you know, Jesus is in a synagogue. People are liking it. Then they turn to not like him and they want to get rid of him. Paul, first synagogue, mm -hmm. he, they're liking it. Then they turn against him and he has to sort of, you know, Get well, you know, get away from it. So the, the whole point is, is that I just want people who might go, well, hold on now. Up to this point, I've been sort of following, but now you're telling me to read. I, this is not something strange. It, this is no. only strange if you don't understand literature, because because literature mm -hmm. has diptychs. All we're insinuating or trying to say, and the data will prove or disprove our case, is that reading John and Revelation, they should be read together. When I got into this with Revelation and started mm -hmm. ch charting out these patterns, I thought. I know that Luke and Acts are, you know, the two treatises to Theophilus sure. have, have a common author. That's generally accepted. That wasn't accepted, or isn't often accept, generally accepted with re reference sure. to, to the gospel. They call it the fourth gospel because they don't want to say that mm -hmm. it's John's gospel, but it is John's gospel, that he is the revelator too, that he sure. is the John on Patmos, the son of Zebedee. So I thought, well, let me go back and see if I can find the same patterning between Luke and Acts. And I came up with exactly the same kind of charting. That mm -hmm. I've got consecutive, you know, as you, you yep. know, they're tracking, yep. which if, if Revelation is the upper story and the gospel is the mm -hmm. lower story, then you would have like railroad ties Correct. between the two. Yep. And what, what is going on on earth mm -hmm. is reflective of what is going on in heaven. And there's interaction between the two. The correspondences can't be random. They have to, they have to interpret one another. Mm -hmm. There has to be a sensible justification. Sure for that juxtaposition. I found the same kind of chiastic charting and same kind of consecutive mm -hmm. charting, only in Acts it was different. The primary charting in Revelation is not consecutive, it's the chiastic. Mm -hmm. In Luke and Acts, the primary charting is consecutive, okay. and the secondary is chiastic, but the same kind of themes are, this, are being yeah. developed. Which is there. what you would expect from two books written by mm -hmm. the same author in dialogue, mm -hmm. and what you would expect very commonly in the way that they wrote in Hellenistic literature. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's I just think that's important that people know that this is not some we didn't do some Houdini here and like oh, woohoo here it is you know I mean there's 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 stuff going on here with so. Plutarch for example and that was very helpful for me in understanding Hellenism mm -hmm. the, the lives of famous Greeks and Romans he's comparing he will compare Alexander with Caesar he's comparing Greek and Roman lives but they're almost all chiastic and then they're comparing each one with the mm. other. In the middle, he shows the flaw that brings them down. Mm. That's the one, that's why the chiastic form works yeah. for Plutarch. There's a flaw of virtue in their soul that brings you know brings the, mm -hmm. the character to ruin all of them. The one who is the perfect overarching pattern for him in terms of the perfect psychology is Socrates, mm -hmm. whose soul is perfect in in his mind. I did a lot of work in Plutarch, and that set me up. I think the Lord was directing me to have the imagination. Sure the categories to begin to receive this. And that occurs roughly coeval with the New Testament. Yeah. So. Get ready to be blown away. Go ahead. What happened here, just to give a little background, I was working out the chiastic patterning, but as I was, I kept seeing these correspondences that weren't chiastic, but they were buying between the two books. I, I found them so often and so compelling I started cataloging, mm. and then I realized there was. That's how I discovered mm. this as a secondary discovery, but it massively reinforces 
The reason I begin with this is because I think you, you begin with something simple in pedagogy. You're trying to teach mm -hmm. someone. We can imagine two books, Revelation from the perspective of heaven and John's gospel from the perspective of earth, and that the connections literarily that would be roughly sequential would be like railroad ties sure. between the two. Conceptually, that gives people the idea. Yeah. It's not mathematical, at least that I can determine. Uh, some of it might be, but I'm not trying to do that. The only calibration I have is the versification and chapter divisions, which interestingly, and of course that's not inspired, I'm not making an argument it is, that comes in in the 13th century, but mm -hmm. it's the only way that we can calibrate, that we can communicate clearly. Sure. Uh, to refer one chapter and verse to another verse address in the, in the corresponding book. And so we will see that they're roughly in the same place, but first of all, there are 22 chapters in Revelation, there are 21 in the Gospel, so I'm not trying to make an argument that this is mathematical. Sure. Absolutely. Although it will shock you how many verses seem to sure. fall into that line, and that's because circumstantially they pick 22 chapters and then 21 for the Gospel. But Revelation is a little bit less than half the length of the Gospel, and so it makes a trapezoid, but then you see the railroad ties yeah. going before. So conceptually, we understand how the structure should fall mm -hmm. that way. What we'll find with the parallel chart is there are very interesting and compelling ones up to the middle of the book. After the middle of the book, it is overwhelming. Standard of proof will rise till as we go through this chart, and when we get to the middle and the end, it will be yeah. beyond any kind of, it'll be clear and convincing, I Absolutely. think is, is the. So if we begin in chapter one of the gospel, and again, we're looking at this, uh, these verses and how they compare. We have John is writing concerning the word of God. What John is that? It's the son of Zebedee, okay, mm -hmm. the disciple. In Revelation, we have John, what John is this? It's the same John. He witnesses to the word of God. So he writes concerning the word of God, and he witnesses to the word of God. And it's John 1.1 1, 1 and Revelation 1.2. I think it's important, too, is they see these correspondences. If there's something highlighted on the correspondence, that means those are directly related. Unique. Yeah, there's to something the, to the, unique. There's, there's vocabulary Either there. the cluster or that the word is only used in, in the one place. So we'll talk about that yep. on the verse address. Yep. So In the gospel, Jesus is the light that shines in darkness. And in Revelation, the face of Jesus shines like the sun. Verse 114, we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. In Revelation, Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, to him be glory. And John the Baptist introduces the earthly Jesus, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then John the Apostle heard a loud voice as of a trumpet, and he sees the heavenly Jesus. Now, I think that's significant because John the Baptist is about to be thrown into prison, and John the Apostle is actually on the prison aisle mm -hmm. of Patmos. So their circumstances are similar. 142 in the gospel, Jesus gives Peter a new name, Cephas, which is translated as stone. In 217, we look to the letters that Jesus is writing to the seven churches. The Lord says, I will give him a white stone and on his stone a new name. I find that Peter becomes really the most significant point of comparison. And the whole idea of the messages to the seven churches is calling the churches to repentance. And Peter is the great example of repentance. Yes. 2.17, now here's one where the verse address is in bold, which means that the operative word zeal only occurs in 2.17 and in 3.19 in Revelation. And in 2.17, Jesus purges the temple. And the, the apostles remember, you know, he takes the whips yep. and overturns the tables. 
And the apostles remembered the verse, zeal for your house will, will consume me. So it's his zeal that causes him mm-hmm. to purify the temple. Revelation 3.19, he's purifying his church with his letters and he commands his people, be zealous therefore and repent. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? That gives us the context for it. When Jesus says, be zealous and repent, he means imitate me mm-hmm. in terms of your attitude toward driving sin out of the community of faith. So he is purifying his people and both cases, I think, for holy war. Mm-hmm. But that zeal gives us a, a context for understanding what it means and why that verse occurred to them. 2.24 and 25, Jesus knew all men, John tells us, for he himself knew what was in man. He has some deep intuitive understanding of mm-hmm. human psychology and I think sinful, the sinful condition of man. In 2.23, all the churches shall know that I, Jesus, am he who searches the minds and hearts. It doesn't seem to be random. That seems to correspond to an, an intuitive wisdom that understands and discerns the heart of man. Mm-hmm. Here's one, 3, 1 and 10. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel. That corresponds to 2.15, where Jesus is um, abominating the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And all kinds of commentaries go every direction trying to say, well, who were the Nicolaitans and what did they teach? Sure. Perhaps this is the context by which we're to understand that. The word Nico, that's common to both names, Nicodemus and Nicolaitans, means victory. Mm-hmm. But Demas is a word for the people, and so is Laos. That's right. Both names suggest the victory of the people. It's an interesting uh, Hellenistic name that's given to Nicodemus. That's clearly not his Jewish name, he's, but he's a Pharisee. And I think that he's, he's the teacher in Israel, but he comes out of the city of darkness. Mm-hmm. He comes to the light. That's significant to John. Remember, he, you know, here's yeah. a Pharisee. What he says is very significant. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God to Jesus. Mm-hmm. He's speaking on behalf of the Pharisee mm-hmm. community, which means the Pharisee community knew that Jesus was come from God because of the signs that he did. Sure. They're consciously in opposition to God, and yeah. that's the context for them. It's incredibly wicked. Mm-hmm. Remember, it's the Sadducees that come, the religious leaders come to John the Baptist, and he says, you brood of vipers. Mm -hmm. He identifies them in the spirit of prophecy as the seed of the serpent. The venom that they're spreading in the people is the doctrine of works, self-righteousness, and Mm self-justification. So I think that that gives us context for understanding the teaching of the Nicolaitans is basically it's Phariseeism. Mm -hmm. It's works-based salvation. 320 uh, in in the gospel, he who does evil hates the light. And he doesn't come to the light lest his deeds be reproved. Mm -hmm. If we think that he hates the darkness, we won't come to him. We don't want to come to him, right? And so we hide in darkness. Mm -hmm. But the invitation of 319 is, as many as I love, I reprove. And that's an encouragement to come anyway. Come to the light like Nicodemus did Mm -hmm. and discover him. So there's a relationship there, it seems, that helps to contextualize. The two voices of heaven and earth are speaking to one another in a way that we can comprehend. Yeah. There's a logic that is informing that. Look at 329. This is in the gospel. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. That corresponds to the very famous verse in Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door. If anyone hears my voice, I will come into him and dine with him. The dinner that's in view is the messianic banquet, which is the espousal banquet with the bride and the lamb. So that makes sense then uh, that they would correspond. John is hearing his voice and sure. he's rejoicing in that. Sorry to see though, e- even even though we're just a little bit in, 
we're starting to see that there are some vocabulary and themes that would strongly suggest this is of sort of the same person. We've had this conversation many times. I mean, so many people are like, you know, it doesn't make a difference who the authorship of John or the authorship of Revelation, but it, it does. And nobody who would study literature would ever say that authorship doesn't matter. It's just that, but they're not trained to think that way. And all we're suggesting is, is that, hey, there might be a better way to read this book. And, and we're not saying in any way, shape, or form that we have everything understood. We're just saying this seems to be a better way to look at the book, you know, in the in the aggregate. This is great. Let's continue on. 423 in the gospel, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. This is Jesus speaking to the Samaritan mm -hmm. woman. In 4, 9, and 10 in, the, in Revelation, Whenever the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders fall down and worship him. The illustration of what Jesus is saying, the true worshipers, is going on in heaven while he's speaking to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that becomes, uh, that becomes even clearer. Look at the next one, 444. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Mm -hmm. He's sensing the contempt of the people. That he's, sure. he's, he's the true prophet the with no honor on earth. Yes. But in heaven, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive honor, blessing and honor to the Lamb forever and ever. Mm -hmm. So he, there is an abundance of the outpouring mm -hmm. of, of the worship of the Lamb with honor in heaven, where they're on earth, he's being disregarded. And so he's turning to the Gentiles, to the, or to the Samaritans here. 518, but Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. That was the accusation. He's breaking mm -hmm. the Sabbath. Does he have authority to break the Sabbath? I think there's something related to that, the line of the tribe of Judah. There's a scroll mm -hmm. that has seven seals yeah. that needs to be opened, and only one is worthy to open the right. seven seals. He can break the seventh seal because he's worthy. Yeah. So he's not breaking the Sabbath. I think there's a relationship in that, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about that later. 5, 22, and 23, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In 5, 13, in Revelation, in every creature, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 5, 35, this is interesting. John the Baptist was a burning lamp, a bright and shining lamp. The two lights that go into Jerusalem are the bright and shining lamp of John the Baptist and Jesus, the light of the world. Mm -hmm. And that city of darkness extinguishes them both. Chapter six is striking yeah, this because is. of the uniqueness yes. of the vocabulary and the significance of the vocabulary. On earth, remember Jesus is feeding the uh, 5,000, announces his intention and says, you give them something to eat. And they say, well, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough. <laughs> and how much do you have? Five barley loaves. They're measuring barley in denarii. That's six, seven, and eight. Look at this in six, six, precisely as predicted by the Diversification. This is one of the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse that goes out into the earth and brings famine. And so a quart of wheat is a denarius, which is an enormous price mm -hmm. for the lesser kind of bread. And three quarts of barley, well, wheat, wheat is a better bread, barley mm -hmm. is less. Three quarts of barley for a denarius, that's an enormously high price even for barley bread. Mm -hmm. In heaven, the horseman of famine is going out into the earth. And so the price is enormously high mm -hmm. for these rare commodities that keep us from famine. On earth, there's not a supply of bread. There's a deficiency, there is no. 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for this company. But Jesus multiplies the bread mm -hmm. at no cost and feeds the hunger of Israel in the wilderness. And so that's the context 
For when the horseman goes out to bring famine in the earth, what are we to think of? We can't afford the bread, but we, t- we are to remember that our Lord is able to multiply bread out of nothing. It contextualizes it. Sure. We're, not to, we're not to think about that. He will provide bread for his people. Sure. Then you come to 615. When Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, that's because he can you know, feed them, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. Then the day of judgment, 615 in Revelation, the kings, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, hid themselves in the mountains. Now, what's the correspondence between the two? In the day of judgment, remember, they're going to hide themselves in the mountains and ask for the rocks mm-hmm. to fall on them and all that. The kings, the great men, the rich men hid themselves in the mountain. And on earth, when Jesus hears that they're coming to make him king, which everyone would desire, right? right. He, gives them he flees from that to the mountains by himself. Yeah. What that is telling us is as much as the wicked kings want to hide themselves from the day of judgment, to the same degree, Jesus wants to flee the honors of men. Mm-hmm. Uh, 6, 18 and 27, the sea was stirred and a great wind was blowing for for this one, God the Father has sealed. So you've got the idea of sealing to protect and the wind yep. blowing. And seven, one to three, that no wind should blow on the earth. This is the judgment yep. being taken on the earth. They were instructed that no wind should blow on the earth or the sea until we have sealed the servants of God. It's having the tendency to calm you down from all of the turmoil in the earth yeah. that's being unleashed in mm-hmm. the earth because it's directing you back to the one who is the one who will protect us. Mm-hmm. 635. He, He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's a promise, isn't Mm -hmm. it? That's right. All right. In heaven, 716, these are the ones who will hunger no more, neither shall they thirst anymore. That's right. So there's promise and fulfillment. There's a logic that is encapsulating these connections. There's the the pull between heaven and earth, which is accentuated in the book of Revelation, because there's constant, you know, where you're Mm -hmm. seeing here, 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 you know, you're getting a vision. And I think that idea is to calm us. No matter what's going on in the world, if we could ever view it from a heavenly perspective, which is all through the Bible, we're supposed to be looking for the heavenly city. We're supposed to be looking, if you've been risen with Christ, Colossians 3, 1, seek those things that are above. Mm-hmm. If we are looking for heaven. And we have earth, him. And we have him. We, we have all we need. Yeah. I agree. Then he says, rivers of living water will flow from him, 738 in the gospel. 717, he will lead them to springs of the water of life. 8, 21 to 22, you will seek me, and where I go, you cannot come. This is what he says to the Jews. You will not find me, the religious leaders, mm-hmm. rather. You will die in your sins. And they said, will he kill himself? In 9, 6, men will seek death, and they will not find it. Here, you will seek me, but you will not find me. There, the, you know, the ones who have rejected him yep. will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from, from them. So they're saying, is he going to kill himself? Sure. Because of the opposition that they're presenting. Sure. Uh, 9, 25, and 27, though I was blind, now I see. I told you, the Pharisees, and you did not hear. So the Pharisees are both blind and deaf. This is the blind man who is mm-hmm. healed in the temple. And then in 9, 20 in, in Revelation, the wicked are like their idols, which can neither see nor hear. Uh, and the illustration of that is the Pharisee rejection of Jesus. No way if you put this in front of somebody who is a literary theorist who has studied literature up to this point, if you didn't tell them what books it was or anything like that, it wouldn't go, wow, there's a lot of correspondence here. Yeah. And we're not even to some of the good stuff yet. We're really overcoming any kind of concept of randomness, it seems yeah. like. 
I agree. Uh, 10, 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In 10, 4, 8, and 9 in Revelation, I heard a voice from heaven and the voice which I heard spoke and said, go, so I went. 11, we're getting close to the center, so this mm -hmm. picks up a little bit. Lazarus is dead, Jesus says to his disciples. He's on his way to mm -hmm. Jerusalem to be crucified, remember? He says, and I rejoice for your sakes that I was not there that you might believe. So when Jesus came, he, Lazarus, had been in the tomb four days. And 11, 9, and 10, they, that is the two witnesses, will see their dead body, or the people will see their dead bodies, the two witnesses, for three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into a tomb. So there for three and a half and three and a half, Jesus will be in the tomb three days, Lazarus is in the tomb four days at seven. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They rejoice that they've extinguished mm -hmm. the light. 11, 43 and 44, with a loud voice he cried out, Lazarus come forth, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot. 11, 11 and 12, now the breath of God entered them, that is the two <laughs> witnesses, and they stood on their feet. Stand is the posture of yeah, life. That's right. So they, and they heard the loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. 1148, if all men believe in him, they will take away our the religious leader's place. That's what Caiaphas is saying to the uh, religious mm -hmm. leaders. If all men follow him, they'll take away our place. Our right. place is our privilege, the elite here, our privilege in the temple. Mm -hmm. But then in 128, no place was found for them, that is those who follow the dragon in heaven. So they're, they're wanting to hold on to their place on earth and they will lose their inheritance in heaven. 12, now we're getting toward the center and it really picks up. 12, 13, 15, and 19. The next day, a great multitude cried out, Hosanna. So it's the triumphal entry. Yep. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Behold, your King is coming. The Pharisees therefore said, look, the whole world has gone after him. In 12, 10 in Revelation, then I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Christ have come. There were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of the world have become the, uh, those of the Lord and his Christ. 12.25, he who loves his life will lose it. 12.11 in Revelation, they did not love their lives to death. To me, this is the center. 12.28 and 31 in the gospel corresponding to 12.9 mm -hmm. and 10 in Revelation. In the gospel, it says, then a voice came from heaven. The people who heard said it thundered. Others said an angel spoke. Now the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out. And then in Revelation, and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was cast to the earth, and his angels, and I heard the loud voices, loud voices in heaven, now has come salvation, and there were thunders. That's in 1119. So it seems to me these phenomena are describing the same event. And if that's the case, it gives us an anchor point, because what is taking place at the triumphal entry is taking place simultaneously sure. in heaven, in chapter 12. And that will become significant when we talk about the time frame of the uh, revelation. 12, uh, 32, Jesus says, and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And that's ironic, if I'm lifted up, it's not an honor, it's mm -hmm. in the disgrace and the, sure. you know, the contempt of the cross. In 12, uh, five, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, there are two things that are said about Judas that are very significant yes. to understanding Revelation. This is really key because both of these things are said uniquely about Judas. And they're also the, the, the two ways that are describing the beast in Revelation. Does that mean Judas is the beast? I don't know that I would say that, but I would say that the beast is certainly one who is like Judas. That's clear. Mm -hmm. That gives us 
more concrete understanding. It's the traitor in the midst that's the most trusted. So Judas, who controlled the purse, should buy those things that we need. Remember, when Jesus dismisses, he commands him to leave. Mm -hmm. What you do, do quickly. He's not going to be there for the Eucharist table. And the, the disciples are wondering, why is he leaving? He's the treasure. He's the most trusted mm -hmm. group. So he would buy things and receive alms. And so they think, well, we have very little at this table. Imagine that, the, the Eucharist table. Everybody knew there wasn't much there. It was very humble. And so they think, well, he's going out to give something to the poor, which tells us something about Jesus, that even in his poverty, he was mindful of sharing with mm -hmm. the poor, chronically, characteristically. Yep. But the disciples are assuming he's either going to give something to the poor or he's going to buy something because we don't have much here at this table. So... Uh, Judas, who control the purse, should buy those things that we need. Judas, and then, but then in chapter 12, before, Jesus had challenged Mary of Bethany when she mm -hmm. breaks this precious ointment. Mm -hmm. That could have been sold for 300 denarii. Mm -hmm. you know? He wants to control buying and selling. And in Revelation 13, 17, the beast wants to control all those who buy and sell. That's his control. That's what he's thinking about. Mm -hmm. He's not thinking about the value of the one that we have mm -hmm. here that, I mean, Mary showed her love sure. by the 300 denarii That's price. Right. In Judas' mind, in his estimation, his value of the Savior is just a tithe of that, which is interesting. Uh, verse 14, 6, famous one in the gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 15, 3, and 7 in Revelation, just and true are your ways, O God, who lives forever. Fourteen, fifteen, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In 14.12, in Revelation, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments. 15, six, 1 to 6, Jesus, uh, this is the upper room discourse. Yep. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown out as a branch and is dried up. And they gather them and throw them into the fire. So if they don't persevere, they're, gonna be, uh, they're not going to be fruitful and they're going to be uh, burned. In 14.15, Revelation 18 and 19, the harvest of the earth is dried up. And another angel who had authority over fire called, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. That is, those who are mm -hmm. persevering, but those, the others. And the angel thrust uh, in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine and threw it into the winepress. 16.8 in the gospel, he will judge of sin, righteousness, and judgment, speaking of the spirit that would come. In 16.7, in Revelation, true and righteous are your judgments. In 16.33, Jesus says in the gospel, I have overcome the world. And in 17.14, the lamb will overcome them. Now, here's the other word that's said about Judas, which is interesting. And it's notice the verse address is bolded. Judas is called the son of perdition. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, I lost no one but the son of perdition. And in 17.8 and 11, the beast will go to perdition. Right. The word perdition is only associated with Judas and the beast. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that we can draw the inference that however we understand the beast in Revelation, he's going to be a character like Judas, the great traitor, mm -hmm. who pretends to be sure. righteous, right. but is a fraud. Which, you know, when you think of like, uh, you know, in 2 Thessalonians, that this person sits in the temple of God, um, you know, Paul doesn't use the temple in the sense of... Um, the Jerusalem temple usually uses it in the sense of the church. We're the mm -hmm. temple of God. Don't you know that your body's a temple of God? This is someone who looks as if they should be part of what is going on, but they're they're deceitful. 
and and they and they do and they do good things because they can do signs and wonders. I mean, Judas could buy yeah. and sell; he could make things happen. I, I think that's that is key. That there is whatever we say, it, there there is John is drawing some similarities between the buying and the selling and the perdition, the close proximity, looking like. So he's giving clues that nuance <clears throat> mm-hmm. who the characters are. Sure. And that raises the question, do the characters in the gospel anticipate the characters in Revelation? Like there is a false prophet Mm -hmm. in Revelation, but Caiaphas is a prophet and yet he's false. false. So are there, are are we contextualizing these characters? Which is the way people would write Mm -hmm. if we're looking at it from a literary standpoint. Exactly. You're building characters that you see. Yeah, good stuff. And it's giving us context for being able to identify who mm-hmm. people are so and what what he's thinking of them 1724 father this is his high priestly prayer as we call it i desire that they also whom you've given me from the foundation of the world and in 178 and those whose name had not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world so we're looking at the same community now the next one and then the one after that is very significant because we have two things that are stated of Jesus that are unique and they are also stated about poor Babylon, which are unique. 1811, the cup which my father has given, he has a cup of loathsomeness that he must drink. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given? And then the harlot Babylon has a cup of abomination. And there's a uniqueness about this cup of wrath that both of them drink. And then in 19.2, which is bolded, they clothe Jesus in a purple robe. They are mocking his kingdom. And the harlot Babylon was clothed in purple. She is a mockery of a queen. What does that possibly mean that these two unique characteristics, Jesus has a cup of loathsomeness and a robe of royalty, and harlot Babylon has a cup of loathsomeness and a robe of royalty. Why is John dressing them the same way? What is he suggesting about Jesus and the whore of Babylon? When I saw this, my background is reformed, and I knew immediately what that must mean. It was very probative. And I can say this, I think, on behalf of everyone, even those who are not reformed. At the very least, we have to say that Jesus is taking the shame and the contempt and the judgment of the whore upon himself. If you're reformed, you understand what that means, if there is a definite atonement. Mm -hmm. But if you're not, at least you have to say he's making it possible by taking her shame and contempt upon himself Mm -hmm. for her to be saved, this one that is the whore Babylon, which would be confirming the Rahab typology that we were anticipating. And in the context of this too, uh, 1838, Pilate said to him, to Jesus, what is truth? He's saying that to the one, he's saying that to the man who is truth himself. Mm-hmm. And in heaven, that's being confessed in 1911. And he, he was called faithful and true. But Pilate can't see that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, 19.5, Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And then that's the famous ecce homo, behold the man. Mm-hmm. Behold, he was faithful and true. And on his head were many diadems and, on his, ro- and his robe was mm-hmm. dipped in blood. Here you see, you see a lot of commonality that, that is developing that robe idea. Uh, Jesus is wearing a crown of thorns in the gospel, but on, in heaven he's wearing a 
crown of diadems. That's right. See? And the robe that he's wearing um, is, on earth, it's a purple robe, but this is after the scourging. He has stained it with his own blood, and so, or it's stained with his own blood. In heaven, he wears a robe dipped in blood. That's part of the Joseph typology. Joseph, remember, had the coat of favor that his father had given him? But the enmity of his brothers who wanted to kill him, they stained it with the blood of a goat, remember. So in Revelation 19, he's wearing a coat dipped in blood, which means he's overcome the enmity. He's on a white horse of victory. He's Mm -hmm. overcome the enmity of his brothers. Pilate then sets a judgment seat. Uh, He sits upon the judgment seat to judge. So we have an unjust judge and an unjust tribunal on earth. But at the same time in heaven, another throne is set. See that 2011, and I saw a great white throne, and he saw who sat upon it judged every man, including this unjust judge, mm-hmm. and he will judge what Christ does too. So it's like there's an appellate court in heaven, and that's the one to which Jesus is looking. He's not looking for justice on earth; he's mm-hmm. looking for justice from heaven, which tells us something about our expectations right. in this world. Exactly. I think so. Well, I think also too, just as an aside, the the. And, and I think we, I think we really miss this. And I hope somebody hears this. What is the greatest injustice? The greatest injustice is our sin against a holy and righteous God. And sometimes we forget that. And 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 I think that you know the greatest form of justice we can give to anybody is telling them the good news of the gospel. You know, and I and I'm I'm and I'm not I'm not saying that doesn't mean that we cannot be involved or we can't advocate for people and, and do those things. But the true justice that's gonna come is not gonna come from us because we don't have all the data to be able to determine mm-hmm. everything. God will bring justice and that's that's as Christians, we are to know that. But what we wanna do is we wanna get people justified so that mm-hmm. the justice that would be duly appropriated to everybody is appeased because of what Christ has done for you and me, it is the greatest thing that we can do. And again, I'm not trying to denigrate or push down some of the incredibly terrible things that go on in our world. And there's no question that there's injustice. And I don't wanna seem as if I'm not being sensitive to that, but I am completely convinced as a Christian, the greatest injustice is our sin against a holy and righteous God. And we've got to lean into that. And, and I think you know, and, here- But you that see, injustice because the ground becomes a ground of mercy. That's exactly and that's right. the message. Yeah. And that's really the, sure. the, the answer. The, the, the question that confronts everybody is, you know, you could be vindicated in front of Pilate if you want to all day long. makes no difference. When we, right. There will come a day when we stand before God, exactly and right. the only that's justification right. there sure. is an appeal sure. to the mercy of Christ. But, so. but the pilots that are trying to give mm-hmm. justice in this world They themselves never, will be judged. That's exactly so right. That's the comfort of the Christian. 1917 and 18, Golgotha, where they crucified him, one thief on either side, and Jesus in the midst. Now, this is phenomenal. Yeah. This, this is unbelievable. This isn't coincidental. No. What John does in his gospel, we'll have to talk about this, but anyway, is he recreates Eden because the saving work of Jesus, the cross, takes place between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of the Tomb. And in the midst is the tree of the cross. Mm-hmm. In the midst of these two gardens, Jesus' suffering begins in Gethsemane. Mm-hmm with the sweating of the brow, mm-hmm. and then the thorns that will be placed, because the sin of Adam brings curse upon the earth, mm-hmm. bring forth thorns and thistles, mm-hmm. and it will resist the labor of man, will bring sweat to his brow. Mm-hmm. So his suffering begins in Gethsemane as he's taking that 
those judgments upon himself. Mm -hmm. Which means the sweat of the brow, he's producing the bread of life. That's what that means. Then at the end, there's a garden where the tomb is, and he comes forth into new life. So mm -hmm. it's a new Eden. He's brought us back into the garden. And the midst is, is one tree. It's the, the tree of the cross, but on either side are two other trees where the thieves are crucified. The two thieves, you know, it's like you have three, three trees, actually. You've got the one tree in the middle and mm -hmm. two trees on either side. And that's the way he's depicting Calvary. Here is Christ crucified in the midst. Mm -hmm. Now, John tells us that his side is pierced, and out of the side comes this flowing water and blood. And the title on the cross is, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's the vision of Calvary mm -hmm. that he creates. There's one tree in the midst. In Eden, there were two trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. The tree of knowledge becomes the tree of death when we partake of it mm -hmm. uh, disobediently. For the cross for Jesus becomes the tree of knowledge because he who knew no sin was made to know our sin. Our sin was mm -hmm. imputed to him. So he had a knowledge of sin, not of active sin, but a passive sin. He took our judgment upon himself mm -hmm. on the cross so he knew the wrath of God directed toward our sin. And that knowledge brought mortal death. But he was also, had within him the power of an indestructible life. He is divine. Mm -hmm. So he cannot remain in death. He will, he will be raised on the third day. But that tree of knowledge that's in the midst of the garden becomes also the tree of life mm -hmm. because it bears fruit. Well, what is the fruit of that tree? It's the body and the blood. It's the Eucharist, right? Sure. And if you partake of the fruit of that tree, the body and the blood, in faith, if you understand, he's, he died as my mm -hmm. substitute, yep. and he took my wrath that was just mm -hmm. deserving of me, or by me, upon himself. If you understand that substitution is the key to the gospel, if you understand that, and that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. Sure. So the cross, the fruit of the tree, which is the, of the a cross, which mm -hmm. is the body and the blood, becomes the fruit of life. He becomes the tree of life. So that's Calvary and all of its hideous glory. That becomes the pattern for the way that John describes heaven. Because when he describes heaven, he says at the top is the throne of God and the Lamb. And that's the title of the cross. Remember? This is Jesus of Nazareth, mm -hmm. who's the Lamb of, called the Lamb of God by John. And he is the King of the Jews. Mm -hmm. It's his kingdom. That's his throne. That's where he enters into his kingdom. That's what he actually says. Flowing out of that was the river. And what happens is flowing out of the throne of heaven is the, the water of crystal river, crystal waters. And on either side, John says, is the tree of life. So he takes the thieves, the two trees of death, and transforms them into the tree of life. Mm -hmm. That becomes the throne of God. Now, what's the significance? Why is it that Calvary becomes the emblem of heaven, the most hellish scene on earth, mm -hmm. you know, and not to take away anything from the horror of that scene. Sure. But that is clearly related in this connection. He says, Golgotha, where they crucified him, Jesus, and a thief on either side, and Jesus in the midst. And when he describes heaven, he says, in the midst of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life. The river that comes forth from the throne of mm -hmm. God was the 
tree of life. So we have these two trees of death on Calvary. We have the two trees of life in heaven. What's the point? The commonality with well, the message that he's bringing from this is that heaven is more than just a place. It's clearly a place. No question about that. But he's intimating that on the day that Christ was crucified, Golgotha became heaven. How is that possible? Because what he's telling us is that heaven is wherever Jesus is. It's a person more than a place. Mm -hmm. And if we had been at Golgotha, knowing what he was doing mm -hmm. on our behalf, mm -hmm. that would have been, there would have been a heavenly joy mm -hmm. in that. And John sees that. Mm -hmm. It really focuses on the singularity of the Savior that he is really, wherever he is, is in heaven. I remember this story that um, was told by Spurgeon of an old man who had a friendship with a younger man who was a skeptic to the faith. And this younger man would challenge him and they would go back and forth. And the, the old man would clumsily, wasn't educated, try to, try to defend the faith as best he could. But a real friendship arose through all of that. And then one day the young man heard that the old man was dying. And he, so he went to, mm -hmm. went to see him one last time. And the old man, like he always did, was testifying to his faith, his simple faith in Christ. And that skeptic boy was, you know, listening to him patiently, but grew tired and weary from, you know, he said his, his skepticism was welling up and he finally just said, how do you know that? How do you know that you're going to, when you die, you're going to wake up in heaven? How, how can you possibly know that? What if you wake up in hell instead? The old man thought for a minute and then he looked at the young man and he said, young man, if I wake up in hell, Jesus has promised that where I am, he will be there with me and I'll throw my arms around him and that will become heaven to me, mm -hmm. even in hell. That's the message here. The, the glory of the person of Christ, if we have him, we can go through hell on earth. Mm -hmm. And he will say that some of us will. That's right. He's going to tell Peter he's going to be crucified. Right. So um, Pilate wrote this title. You know, it was written, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, 1919. In Revelation 19.16, on an outer garment, a name was written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This, these, Pilate writes this to mock Jesus and his kingdom and God himself writes, King of kings and Lord of lords, the banner on his thigh, which is the emblem of his great strength. And then when they had uh, crucified Jesus, they took his outer garments, and on his outer garments a name was written, King of kings. So he has dishonor on earth, but mm -hmm. honor in heaven. 1928 and 30, and following Jesus, knowing that all things were now finished, said, it is finished, and they took the body of Jesus and bound it and placed it in a tomb. Well, that helps us to contextualize what's going on in Revelation 20, 2, 3, and 5. They laid hold of the dragon and bound him and shut him in the abyss that he should deceive the nations no more. That's the key mm -hmm. to his being bound. That is that the gospel can go forth right. is the idea. Until the thousand years were finished and the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So this idea of his work is complete and done mm -hmm. And Jesus said in verse, chapter 20, verse 15, he said, Woman, why are you weeping? He's meeting Mary Magdalene in the garden. And he's restored the fellowship of God and man in the garden. Mm -hmm. So it's a reversal of Eden, based, or the curse of 
are being driven out of Eden. That corresponds to Revelation 21.4. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the promise. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's no reason for weeping. There's even gospel here, though, because you got Mary Magdalene who's had seven demons. And and, and here here Jesus is awakening in the garden because she says she thought he was the gardener. And, you know, she's a type of bride, you know, like like Eve. Once again, who is it that is Christ's bride? Who is it that are the people that he loves? It's those people that most people would go, oh, those are on the margins. Those are, it's mm-hmm. you and me. It's a beautiful picture when we can see it. And Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me yet, for I have not ascended to my Father and to my God and your God. A strange verse in its isolation, but look what it corresponds to. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's not yet the time of the consummation of the marriage and the wedding. The Gospel 20, verse 27, be not unbelieving, but believing. In Revelation 21, 8, but the fearful and the unbelieving have a different mm-hmm. uh, judgment. 21.15, Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs. 19.9, the wedding supper of the lamb. Mm-hmm. And that's the feed, you, you prepare them for the wedding supper. Um, that's how you feed the, the church. 21.24, this is his disciple who wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. So John is reflecting as he comes to the end mm-hmm. of writing the gospel. But in Revelation, he said to me, write, for these words are faithful and true. So the command for John to write begins with the gospel, with, with Revelation, mm-hmm. not the gospel. Although I think they're composed together at one moment of time. But that's, it seems like that those are related. Those seems to be clearly related. Mm-hmm. The commission to write and then the final sign-off, those who wrote, you know, at the end of the gospel, mm-hmm. those who wrote those things, the witness is true, faithful and true. In 21-25, that very puzzling and suggestive conclusion to the gospel. And there are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I think what he means by that, by the way, if you understand how he uses the metaphor of the book, is that the whole world would be filled with a library of scrolls. Well, we are those scrolls. Mm -hmm. The whole world is filled with Christians. Jesus has written every one of those books. So it, it's an actual verse that seems impossible that actually I think is filled, fulfilled literally. You know, if you think all the Christians over all the world, there's a, it's, the world has become a library of the mm-hmm. books of the deeds of Jesus, as has heaven with the church that, mm-hmm. of triumphant that has gone on to heaven. So he's filled all of heaven and earth with, mm-hmm. with the works of Jesus. Right. 22, 19, 18 and 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the things which are written in the book. He, that's an echo of the end of Deuteronomy. It's the way Moses, Moses concludes the Pentateuch, but it also seals it up. And here you can see this reference to the books that are written. Yeah. Uh, anyone takes away from the books that are written. These are some of the correspondences that seem to be significant in the way that these two books are written. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's a whole other way to look at this too, chiastically. But just this, um, it there's just so much thematic and vocabulary usage that you just have to sit back and go, it's really difficult to believe that this is two separate people writing at two separate times 
you know, the, the coincidence level of that would go up now if you said this is two books that were written at the same time to show heavenly and earthly things going on. That seems to make more sense of the data of what's going on here. And I think that's, you know, at least I, I see it that way, but I, I think it's, it's pretty strong. So I hope that those who listen to this, I know there's a lot of going through, but I think that they'll, they'll be able to go, wow, but we still have more to go here that, that's even. There, in, I saw fragments of all kinds of different patterns that, yeah. It's like you're weaving together the two books, yeah. you see, and then there's going to be the typological, yeah. I mean, the, the chiastic weaving yeah. together as well. And that's the primary relationship sure. between the two books, yeah. is the chiastic weaving. I think what happens is each one of these gives a witness. Like we saw the typological mm-hmm. weaving of the Battle of Jericho, the sure. narrative, sure. raised the possibility of identifying Lady Babylon mm-hmm. if she's in any type of Rahab that shifts the ground completely. Here, we see further evidence. We have a second witness Mm -hmm. where Jesus is dressed like her with this cup of loathsomeness. What is the significance of that? Why is John dressing Jesus like the whore? I mean, she's clearly showing the contempt that Jesus is undergoing, but is there not a redemptive purpose for that, that humiliation that he's going through? And if that is, that helps to characterize but when we come to the chiastic chart, we will know without question who is this whore of Babylon. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any way that we can misunderstand. We'll have three witnesses. By two or three witnesses, a thing is established. Sure. And how is it that all of these are coinciding mm-hmm. to be that sure. convincing and, con- yeah. and confirmatory? Sure. And to me, I think that at the end of the day, this shows me not only was there very real intention by John, but it also shows that there was something more going on that was above John's ability to put these things together because it's just, it's just, it it really is, uh, it's beautiful. The the word of God is beautiful. So um, we'll, uh, we'll have to look at the casting stuff here coming up. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.